0: Welcome to Local Motion, a weekly app production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. I'm your host, Cassie Canoost. Today on Local Motion, we celebrate Native American Indian Heritage Month, and we pay a visit to the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose, where we meet CJ Bradford, the museum's director and carekeeper. We'll explore the history of the Ute tribe in our region and what efforts the museum is making to preserve that
1: history. It's a fun area, but we're also making it to what, hopefully that, when the, the, child walks away, there's a little bit of a learning about the the culture.
0: Later, we'll hear how a high school in our region decided to create a Navajo language class.
1: It's
2: such a cool class, such a different way of learning, very steeped in the oral tradition. You know, like, what is the true meaning behind the words and behind the sounds? Everything is is tied together.
0: Then, in a special report for the Mountain West News Bureau, a journalist in our region recently spoke with her 84-year-old grandmother about her experience in U.S.-supported boarding schools.
3: We live there and inside, and we call us up to our like prisoners.
0: From KVNF News, it's Local Motion. Recently, I took a trip to the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose to visit with C.J. Bradford, the director and carekeeper of the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose. I learned how the museum sits at the heart of traditional Ute territory. It was originally built in 1956, near the ranch of Uncompahgre leader Chief Ure and his wife Jepita. Administered by History Colorado, the museum and grounds are listed in the National Register of Historic Places. The grounds include Chief Ure Memorial Park, as well as the grave where Chipita was buried after her death on reservation lands in Utah in 1924. It also includes a native plants garden. The museum grounds are linked to the citywide trail system. It includes shady picnic areas, quiet walking paths, and a memorial to Spanish conquistadors who traveled the area in 1776. While there, I started my visit with CJ by asking her to walk me through the history of the Ute tribe in our region.
1: The nooch is what the Ute people call themselves meaning the people, the Nuch people, and their their history, they've always been here. They have a creation story, you know, they are the people from the shiny mountains, but there are three Ute tribes, two located in Colorado, southwestern part of Colorado, and that would be your southern Ute tribe, just outside Durango. Then you have your Ute, Mountain Ute tribe, which is outside Cortez. In Utah, there is the Ute Indian of the Uinta and Uray Reservation. And interesting enough, in 1881, when the Utes were removed, and there were two bands of Utes that were removed from Colorado that went up to Utah. That would have been your Oncompagre Utes and your White River Utes. And they were moved up to Utah, and that's why it's the Ute Indians of the Uinta, because there was the Uinta Reservation already established. And Uray was for when Chief Uray. he was one of many leaders of the Ute people but um, he journeyed on in 1880 and they were removed in 1881. So that what constitutes the three Ute tribes today. There is a history of the Ute people, but they've always been here in this area. They share many things in common with one another. For example, would be the Ute Bear Dance, which is something that is held every spring. Um, they have them each individually throughout the, the springtime. That's when the bear is coming out of a hibernation, and they have their story of how the Ute Beardettes came to them. But it's something, one of, them, um, one of the many celebrations that they, uh, and, and ceremonial, that they celebrate together.
0: And how does the museum aim to honor and celebrate the heritage and contributions
1: of the Ute? We respect and honor our voices, again, of who we are and where we come from. We share the past the present and the future of the Nooch people. Native American Heritage Month, we celebrate in our own ways. And, you know, it was something that was passed. It actually goes back to like 1621 when when there was a first recognizing Native people, but it wasn't really until moving forward until like here in 1990s when um, President Bush, the senior, passed a resolution making Native American Heritage Month. So with that, it gives us, as Native people, myself, as a Lakota. It is our voice that you're going to start hearing, our voices that are changing what history books wrote. Our voices to share what accomplishments, what we have done. We have people who are astronauts, and we have doctors, we have actors, we have singers. We are a part of the story because, as I mentioned earlier, Alden Naranjo said that, you know, we were invisible. But we're not invisible because when you know them, mostly when our old people, when they talk to us, when you know who you are and where you come from, and that's where we know who we are. So now we're celebrating our stories, our achievements. We honor ourselves. So Native American Month to all of us, you know, like, we just had, like, wear your mocks, wear your moccasins day. We're proud as Indian people, Native people, Indigenous people, sharing our stories
0: And if someone were to walk into the museum right now,
1: what would they learn about? In the museum, by Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk, she shared that our history is written on the landscape. And that says a lot. The seasons, the directions, the Nuch people, their footprints were on this landscape. They lived upon this landscape. Their stories, their traditions. So you will learn much about from very today, contemporary We worked, uh, we had a a STEM grant that we received for five years. We worked with all three Ute tribes and we worked with the elders and the youth. And we went all over Colorado to different sites of the Ute people. And the elders would share stories from about plants, they would share about wiki ups, just so. We have stories in the museum that we, we videoed, and so you come and listen to those stories. We went out to Ute rock art sites. Um, there's history, uh, yes, of the past. There's history on the, the bear dance, where the bear dance is something that the youths hold very true. Every year they have, in springtime, uh, bear dance. So there is much to learn about who the people are. And again, what we're showcasing here at the museum is that the youths are still here.
0: And do you offer a number of additional educational opportunities here at the museum, right, such as the outdoor classroom? Can you walk me through some of
1: this? Well, we just recently um, have our our naturescape, our playground naturescape. and it's it's a playground, but it has that little cultural flair to it. We have a bear's cave to it because of the youth people, the bear dance. So we have a we did a bear's cave. We have even an eagle's nest up there. We have stories, about creation stories, um, kind of story panels up there. It's done in a circle uh, rep- and representing the four directions and the four colors. We have playgrounds. Uh, the playground has where they can play, uh, climb like on a medicine wheel, a spider web. We have some drums out there. We have some xylophone. It's just it's a fun area, but we're also making it to what hopefully that when the the Child walks away, there's a little bit of a learning about uh, the culture. We have a what I really like seems to be very popular is this very large board that has five birds on it with their eagle span, the largest being the eagle. And you can stand up in front of there and spread your arms, and you'll be surprised how big the eagle the, the span of the, the eagle wing because it, even when I put my arms up there, the eagle wing spans larger than my arms. Being stretched out, and we have other birds, so kids do enjoy that, and they like to go down the slide. So we have components of playground, but it's, it's done with just a little cultural touch to it.
0: What are some common misconceptions culturally that you would like to address?
1: People think that Indians, uh, Native people, we get a free ride. Oh, I, you know, it must be nice. You get monies from the government, uh, your casinos. Again, you must remember there's like 574 federally recognized tribes across our Indian country, and each tribe is different. Some are smaller tribes, bigger tribes, some, yes, there are some monies that uh, are coming from casinos, but that's kind of my thing was that, you know, that we get like a free ride in so many ways with um, scholarships. And granted, I did get for myself, but it's no different from any other scholarship that you receive. You have to keep maintain a certain grade average. So that would be a conception. And you know, there's a stereotype that we have of when people put their hand over their mouth and kind of do that little little woo over there. I call that the, you know, you know, that's Hollywood, or the drum. You know, the drum is very sacred. We use very much today in, in ceremonies, celebrations, but there you'll hear that drum beat. da 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 Again, I call that the Hollywood drum beat. So those are some misconceptions there that people mock. But again, I think maybe they're just not aware of, for our culture, what that means. And that, you know, misconception that we're all, you know, we're not one, one tribe. and you know, we speak many different languages. And again, we're kind of diverse in some of our own culture and our tradition, so we're, 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 we're different. Where some people are like the Buffalo culture, some people are more from, you know, being along the coast area with, with fish and, and, and things like that. So those are just to name a few. Are there any projects in the works that we should know about? Well, we are looking at to doing an archaeological dig site. We, in previous years, we had what we call like a little sandbox. But this one is going to incorporate just um, right down from the museum. We are on the lands of uh, Chief Ure and Japita that resided here. And, of course, Japita is buried here. But back in the 70s, there was an archaeological dig. And they found the actual foundation of Ure... And Chapita's home site, so we want to incorporate from that dig the home site through the archaeological dig, preserve it in that way, so we can talk about uh, the Utes and Urengapita and how when they moved down here to this, because here at the museum it's called the Los Pinos Agency Two, they were up at Los Pinos Agency One, which was just outside Gunnison. But we want to be able to share that story line, how they got down here, which, which we know now which is Montrose today. But then we also want to be able to set it up to where, when school groups come in, that we share with them how when one goes out to an archaeological site, when they are going to a site that was at one time of youth people, or, and how they go about the process. So that is a project that we're working on. We're continuing working on across the street. We have our, our Native American Ethnobotany Garden. So we're continuing adding more plants. What we did add this past summer was the bee balm. The bee balm is a plant that is used for medicinal use, Um, you know, the uses for um, the Ute people. We have one of our spiritual elders from the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, Terry Knight. So he comes down in the summertime every summer and toward the end of the summer and always picking the bee balm. So we're working on that project. As well too, and the latest one we just are good. We're just talking about is our working with the library. We're going to be working on a a book walk, a story walk is what it's called, a story walk out at our naturescape play area, where we'll have stories encased and kids can read a story that would be about the Ute people, animals, uh, climate change, anything that ties into our environment and the Ute people. So those are some projects right now.
0: To expand on that, how do you hope the museum will impact the perception, the
1: understanding of Indigenous heritage in our region? That they just stop and take time to listen, because our history is forever changing. Our history was always told by the person who always had the power, and they told the stories, and perhaps they weren't told right. So here we just want people to just stop for a minute and listen to what we have to say. Hear our voices. Let us share our stories. We want you to be part of our stories. So that way we can bring a better understanding and at least start that bridge on both sides.
0: If you're just tuning in, welcome. You're listening to Local Motion here on KVNF. Today we're celebrating Native American Indian Heritage Month, and we just paid a visit to the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose, where we met CJ Bradford, the museum's director and carekeeper. Next, we turn to Durango, In addition to Spanish and French classes, Durango High School added a new language course this year. But it's not a foreign language. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD reports on the school's decision to create a Navajo language class.
4: It's 8.10 a.m. on a Thursday morning at Durango High School, and Elfrida Begay has her students on their feet. And she's coaching them how to say the anatomical term for waist in Navajo.
5: Simon says, "Shani, shani, your waist.
4: As Begay teaches students words for various body parts, she has them move their bodies.
5: Simon says, stretch your arms, stretch your arms right here. Reach, 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 reach. First period, rarely nine o'clock.
4: It's the first Navajo language class ever at Durango High School. And according to Durango's 9R School District, it's the first public school to teach Navajo in the state of Colorado. Begay started at Durango High School five years ago as an administrative assistant. But even before she was employed there, she was pushing Navajo language instruction.
5: In my interview, I had said my long-term goal would be to establish Navajo language here. So, um, I pushed it.
4: (laughs) As an undergraduate at Fort Lewis in the 2000s, Begay noticed that Navajo language was being taught by non-native instructors.
5: He was a white guy. He retired now. I don't remember his name. Listening to him and seeing him teach, and I was thinking, like, I can do this. Like, I can
4: totally do this. But in order to become a teacher, Begay needed a master's degree in bilingual education and a certificate from the Navajo Nation allowing her to teach the language. The school hired her earlier this year and approved her class for this fall semester.
2: Elfrida was willing to go above and beyond to get the certifications because at the end of the day, it's what's best for kids. Just, it's pretty
4: awesome. Rachel Colesman is a vice principal at Durango High School.
2: It's such a cool class, such a different way of learning, very steeped in the oral tradition. You know, like what is the true meaning behind the words and behind the sounds? Everything is is tied together. And for those students that often struggle with the foreign language, it's just that approach oftentimes works much, much better for them.
4: Based on the success of this class, Elfrida Begay will continue to teach Navajo next year with an introductory and a Level 2 class. Colesman says the classes are a commitment to meeting the needs of Navajo students.
2: We just really were very passionate about being able to offer something to our students because at the end of the day, the reservation's ways off, and many of them have family down in Window Rock and Shiprock area, and so we wanted to bring a little piece of home here because this is home for them as well.
4: Why do you think it hasn't happened sooner um, in the school district?
2: That's a loaded question. Um, no, it's it's a great question. Um I don't think the timing was right in the past. Um, we there wasn't the there wasn't the person that was passionate about pushing it forward. Um, there wasn't always, I'm, and I'll just name it. There there wasn't always the focus on on the equity and diversity. Um, and you know, I I applaud um, Durango Nine R for for taking a lead in in that work of creating a, a s- space where all cultures and backgrounds feel welcome um, because that's not always been the case in this area
5: so really quickly the s section there is partly ship me ship
4: elfrida begay runs her students through phonetics breaking the words down into parts
5: um the l if you if you're saying it right you're spitting then that
4: Watching Begay move among her students, it's clear she's in her element teaching Navajo.
5: Do is the sh shift me.
4: I am super excited to be given this opportunity.
5: Um, at the same time, it's like, it's about darn time that we have something available within indigenous culture, within indigenous language here in Durango, especially since we're just an hour north of Navajo country. Indigenous languages need more representation here in this part of the country. We're in the southwest. We should have all the languages here. Luca, colors,
4: Begay's goal is for students who take four years of Navajo language classes to earn a seal of biliteracy. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis.
0: For 150 years, Native Americans were sent off to boarding schools supported by the U.S. government. They were stripped of their language and other cultural ties and forced to assimilate into American lifestyle. Arizona journalist Sierra Alvarez spoke with her 84-year-old grandmother about the experience in the special report for the Mountain West News Bureau.
5: My name is Sierra Alvarez. I am a descendant of an Indian boarding school survivor. My grandmother, Anita Yellowhair, went to the Intermountain Indian School in northern Utah, over 500 miles away from her home in Steamboat, Arizona.
3: My Native American Navajo name is Yellowhair, Anita Yellowhair.
5: My grandmother never spoke much about her boarding school experience until now. I believe this was because she never wanted to dwell on the past or reopen old wounds. I also believe she didn't want to open new wounds for her children and for me, her granddaughter. When she finally told me about what happened to her, I was angry, but mostly it made me in a way depressed to hear the full story. She had to stop speaking Navajo and learn English and she couldn't wear her traditional clothes or hairstyle.
3: That was the most embarrassing moment of my life getting my hair cut. Because every one of us is a, a spiritual thing. We all believe in the spirit and creator. We carry a little medicine bag, depend on that medicine bag to protect us.
5: When she did speak in her native language, she was punished.
3: You have to wash the toilet all night or sit down the hall with your hand against the wall with your knees on the floor. That's a torture.
5: I was never taught how to speak Navajo because my family wanted me to learn English and live my life the white man's way. I never realized the importance of embracing my culture because, as a family, we had lost our way for so long that sometimes it feels as if it's too late. More than a year ago, she first started telling me her story. Little by little, I learned of her painful experience, including corporal punishment and sexual abuse.
3: We lived there, and inside, we anyway, were close up, to like, prisoners. Yeah, of course, abusers did not understand English, and they're talking to you, and uh, you don't speak up. That's, that's, a, that's a rule that you have to learn how. But they don't explain why.
5: Can you tell me how you were abused?
3: while I hit hit with your bare hand. You're not allowed to cry.
5: And there was more, much more. My grandmother recalls being told to go into town with a white boy who had a truck. She was given 50 cents to buy some socks.
3: This boy takes me down to the store and he abused me there in the car. And that's they, they, the way they took advantage of us is taking us somewhere and hiding and do what they wish to us.
5: When you say he abused you, do you mean sexual abuse?
3: i just feeling across uh, your, your breast and trying to put their hand in your panty and, and you just try to cover up and it's not enough. They're all white men.
5: How old were you?
3: I was about 17, 16.
5: And no one believed you when you would tell?
3: No, they didn't believe us, and they, they interviewed the well, I was embarrassed to answer before him. There were a lot of boys like that, and all they did is uh, uh, take them from school, and that was it.
5: To hear my grandmother's story for a second time was challenging. I had no idea she was sexually assaulted at her school. That hit me hard because I know how dehumanizing sexual assault can be to a woman. She shares how she feels about it now.
3: I don't feel anything. I think it goes on every day and night. I think it's something that's going on all the time. And our parents didn't believe us either. But they wanted other people to be nice to us, and so that's why they agree with them.
5: Did you resent your parents for that?
3: No, because I didn't know what was going on.
5: Despite that abuse, my grandmother became a dental assistant after graduating from the Intermountain Indian School in 1960. She ended up working for Dr. Bill Thomas, the only dental officer for the U.S. Public Health Service Indian Hospital at the time, for more than a year in Winslow. Later on, Yellowhair moved to Chicago where she gave birth to her daughter, Noel Alvarez, my mother. Why do you want to talk about your boarding experience now? As opposed to when you were younger.
3: Nobody cared about it until a couple of times, a few years ago, it happened to I just thank you very much for being interested. I want to know why I'm very interested now.
5: Despite the beatings, despite the sexual abuse, despite every other wound my grandmother has endured, she is so forgiving to every single person who has harmed her in any way. I'm happy she found God to cope with what happened to her. Because while it wasn't fair, it's the truth. And I will always be interested in my grandmother's story. She is a piece of history that has been swept under the rug time and time again. She tells me that she still works to heal to this day.
3: And for you, Sierra, I advise you, find your happiness, find your path, right away, or else you're just going to wander in that desert like I have been. I'm at the end of
0: my trail. The Intermountain Indian School closed its doors in 1984. Utah State University built a campus over the remains of the school. You just heard from Arizona journalist Sierra Alvarez with her grandmother Anita Yellowtail. DNA photographer and artist Eugene Tipahi shares about His Art Heals, the jingle dress project to bring awareness to Native American causes through the healing power of the traditional Objibahwe jingle dress dancers. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, here's KRCL's Valine MC with more.
6: I actually was the managing editor at the Navajo Times newspaper from 95 to 2000.
2: That's Eugene Tapahi, local Diné artist and photographer, utilizing his art to bring global attention to Native American issues through Art Heels, the Jingle Dress Project.
6: And I picked up the camera at my first time at the Navajo Times in 1992 as a photojournalist. I am a self-taught photographer and my, my project's called Art Heals a Jingle Just Project. We started this project back when COVID started, back in 2020, and it's been going since. We've actually had a lot of great response. We've been able to bring native issues to the forefront and not only during COVID, but even today we're still pursuing our goal of healing and through art. So when when COVID first started, of course we were all isolated and we were quarantined. One of my aunts, last matriarch in my family, she actually got COVID. About seven days later she passed away from COVID. When I had a dream, I had a dream about me being in Yellowstone. And I was sitting in, in tall grass and I was actually watching bison graze and the sun was setting. And so as I was dreaming, All of a sudden, I heard jingles from jingle dresses. And I saw like 20 to 30 women start dancing in the grass. They were dancing next to the bison. And I felt this really peace and hope and this tranquility. And I felt like my heart was healing from the stress that I was having and the fear that I was having during COVID. And so when I woke up, I shared my dream with the family. I just told them, I said, you know, I think my dream is telling me that I need to take the jingle dress to the land and if we heal the land and the ancestors of those lands, that they're gonna come and help us heal during COVID. And so that's what we decided to do. And I, I got my two daughters who are jingle dress dancers and we got you know friends of our family to come and, and join us. We really wanted to do is just recreate the dream. And so we went and we did our first photo shoot and we had the girls dance out at the salt flats here in Utah. As a photographer, I wanted to document this moment and we prayed and we had the blessings of the honor song and when we actually danced it on the land, it was just such a spiritual moment. And the girls even said themselves that they felt like the ancestors of that land were dancing with them at the same time. And I was in tears after the dance was over because it was so spiritual. And one of my daughters said to me, she says, dad, you know, we can't just do this once. We've got to take this across the land. And so that's when we started thinking about how do we do this? And so my idea was to go to state and national parks because those were colonized and taken from native people first. And we believed that those ancestors needed to be blessed and healed first. And so that's what we did. And of course, the first real photo shoot, we call it a real photo shoot, <laughs> was at Yellowstone. And, and so we went to Yellowstone, and that's how it started.
0: That's DNA photographer and artist Eugene Tapahi with Valine M.C. of KRCL in Salt Lake City. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KVNF. You've been listening to Local Motion, a weekly KVNF production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. You can listen to today's episode and all Local Motion episodes online at kvnf.org. Local Motion airs every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. As always, you can stream online at kvnf.org. The importance of local journalism cannot be overstated. It's what keeps our community informed and connected. The giving season officially kicks off on Giving Tuesday, or what we're calling Giving News Day, November 28th. The KVNF News team is fortunate to be one of 30 Colorado newsrooms receiving a matching grant thanks to the Colorado Media Project. Consider making a year-end gift and double your impact for KVNF News and Public Affairs. Go online to kvnf.org and click the donate button to learn more. Thank you for listening. For KVNF, I'm Cassie Canoost. Have a safe and enjoyable Thanksgiving.